TheYeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by our dear friend, Rav Shalom Potash, in tribute and the Zikaran uh, <coughs> and the Schusoy and the Holmeshpacha in connection to the yard site of Arnava Kaddish and Arnava Tzadik, Rav Shalom Kalin, Rav Shalom of Kalin, whose yard site is on Chavbeis Tammuz, the 22nd day of Tammuz, Rav Shalom of Kalin was the student of Reb Aaron Hagadol of Karlin. Reb Aaron Hagadol was the great student of the Magad of Mizrich. He passed away at a very young age, and he was succeeded by his student, Reb Shloyme of Karlin. Shloyme was killed by a Russian Cossack who shot him. As he was davening, it was Chavbeis Tammuz, Tov uh, Kofnun Beis, I think, the second, 22nd day of Tammuz, 1792. And the Shloyme was one of the greatest tzaddikim of his generation and the second in the dynasty of Karlin and Stalin that continues to this very day. His chassidim and tzaddikim, some of them called him Mashiach ben Yosef. The class is also dedicated by one of the pillars of the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, Rabbi Yitzchak Shlomo, in honor of the birthday of his wife, Rachel Sora Bas Naomi, Larichis Yomim Vishanim Toivis, for many, many years, filled with Hatzlocha, good health, abundant happiness, Nachas, serenity, tranquility, and Bracha Vahatzlocha Adbali Dai Betoiva Nigla. Class is also dedicated for a complete and speedy recovery for Ibshalom. Ben Freda, Lariches Yamam Vishanam Toivis, and also in tribute of the yard site of Reb Harav Reb Chaim David Nota, Ben Nachman Doiv Vichnin, Zechreinel of Rachid, Rosh Hashiva of Tiferes Bachurim, and Maristan, one of the, <coughs> the Rav of Tzamach Tzedek in Mansi, whose yard site is on Chava of Tammuz, the 26th day of Tammuz. Thank you very much to all of the donors and our partners who help us out to continue our work. Okay, let's begin. I hope by now you open your source sheets. If you did not, please <laughs> please open them so uh, we could uh, we can begin the process. So let's begin inside. We're going to learn today a fascinating medrash on this week's parasha, Parashas Matos. And then see the problems and the challenges, and then learn a very profound and fascinating explanation to be able to explain this medrash. This medrash comes from Medrash Tanchuma, Parshas Matos, as we say here in the headline. And part of it is actually quoted, actually all of it is quoted by Rashi. Part of it by Rashi and Parshas Matos, and part of it by Rashi and other Mepharshim, Radak, and others in Sefer Yeshua, the book of Joshua. In Parshas Matos, we learn, so it's, it's a very intense story. God tells Moshe, he says, Take revenge of the Midianites, and then you're going to die then you're going to pass away. And this is, of course, in the aftermath of the story in which Bilam 
suggests to the Moabites and the Midianites that they should allow their women, their young women and girls, to engage in immoral promiscuity with the Jewish people, something that affects hundreds of thousands of Jews who surrender to this type of promiscuity, and their idolatry. It was something that almost, that, that not almost, that claimed the lives, according to Rashi, of hundreds of thousands of Jews. Um, it was almost like a spiritual genocide plan against the Jewish people. After nobody can defeat them all the years in the desert, the Midianites would defeat them through a very ingenious and original way of completely breaking down the boundaries of family, of integrity, of of, of borders, in, borders and intimacy, and luring in thousands and thousands of Jews, hundreds of thousands of Jews, into the idolatry of Pa'ir, which represented complete anarchy, complete promiscuity, absolutely no rules, no authority, no boundaries, no structure. The nature of the idolatry was that you actually had to defecate in front of it, which represents the life philosophy that it represented. So in Parshas Matos, God tells Moshe, I want the Jews to go to war against Midian, and then you'll die, says the Medrash. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda said, we also have it in English translation from Sepharia. Thank you, Sepharia. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda said, If Moshe wanted to live more years, he could have lived longer. God told him, take revenge for the Jewish people from the Midianites, and then you'll pass away. So it's clear that God made his death dependent upon the vengeance against Midian. He told them, only after you wage a war against Midian will you die. Only afterwards. So what could have Moshe done? Moshe could have delayed the battle, the engagement with Midian, and then he would have lived until after that battle. So he could have engaged the, he could have delayed the battle for a few years and lived another few years. This teaches you the praise of Moshe. Shalai Omar, he didn't say, in order for me to live for the sake of my remaining alive, I will delay the war against the Midianites. That's not what he did. Rather, miyat, immediately, after God told him to go fight the Midianim, Moshe speaks to the nation saying, Mobilize from among you men, suitable men, to go to the to go into the army and let them go for battle toward the Midian, wage war against Midian. So what's the Medrash say? Moshe could have Moshe here was given a, a, an opening to live longer. God said. Death, your death comes only after the battle with Midian, but that's not what happens. Right after Hashem says, Go fight the Midianites, and then you're going to die. Right away, 
he mobilized a Jewish army and they went to fight Midian. A little later in the Medrash, the Medrash contrasts this with Moshe's disciple. Amru Zichreinam Levracha, next paragraph. The sages of blessed memory taught, Ksiv Yeshua. It's written about Joshua. Joshua is, of course, the faithful disciple and successor of Moshe. In chapter 1, right after Moshe passes away, and Yehoshua takes over, God tells him, Just as I was with Moshe, I will be with you. This is Yehoshua, Perik Aleph Pasuk Hay, chapter 1, verse 5. Therefore, so Yeshua essentially was supposed to live for 120 years, just like Moshe, because Hashem said, I will be there with you, just like I was there with Moshe, which basically compared the two, just like I protected Moshe, I preserved Moshe's life, he lived the full span of 120 years, Yeshua was also supposed to live that span, that lifespan. Why was Yeshua's life shortened by 10 years? What happened? Says the Medrash. Because when God told Moshe, take revenge from the Midianites for their genocidal attempts to exterminate the Jewish people. Even though at that moment he was also given a death sentence, God told him that afterwards you're going to die. He didn't say to himself, tomorrow I will die. What benefit is there for me to go fight the Midianites? I'll fight them, I'll win, and then I'm gone. And therefore, what should I do? Let me stay. Let me remain here alive. I'll delay the conflict. In other words, winning a conflict and removing those who want to destroy your people is great, but what, I'm going to die right afterwards. So let me delay it. That's not what he did. God told him to do it. He immediately did it. He sent them immediately to go to Midian. His student, Yeshua, didn't behave this way. When he came to wage battle against the 31 kings, each of them which led a tribe, or a mini-nation in the land of Canaan, there were 31 nations that Yeshua, when Yeshua came to Israel, to the land of Israel, he sent a letter. This says in Talmud Yerushalmi, and the Rambam quotes it, he sent a letter to all the nations. And he gave them three options. Option number one is whoever wants to leave could leave. Option number two, whoever wants to live with us in peace can live with us in peace under the authority of the Jewish people, and they would have to adhere to the seven Noahide laws, in other words, to the basic moral codes of civilization, pay taxes, etc. And whoever wants to fight could fight. So there was one tribe, the Girgashi tribe, they took a left. They left. The other ones remained in battle. So when Yeshua had to fight with 31 kings, in order to give the Jewish people their homeland... Eretz Yisrael, Omar, he said, If I'm successful, if I kill these kings, I'm going to die right away. That's what happened to Moshe Rabbeinu. He fought Midian, he defeated Midian, and then he died. 
shortly after he died, the same thing is going to happen to me. Ma'asa. So what did Yeshua do? His chil be'echad, he began with one, um'akav b'malchamtan. He delayed the war. He procrastinated. He began with one, but he stalled in the war with the rest. Shanema. The Pasuk says, Yeshua chapter 11, verse 18. Yeshua perikinah Pasuk Yitches. When it describes all of the battles that Yeshua fought in the land of Canaan, Shanemar, it says, Yomim Rabim Asu Yeshua's Kalam Alachim Eilam Alcham. Joshua waged war with all of these kings over a long period of time. He made sure not to do it like this, the snap of the finger, because he didn't want to die afterwards. Amalek Kadesh Baruch, who God says, so this is what you do. This will shorten your years by 10. Amar David, this is the meaning of what David HaMelech says. We say it every morning. Which means there are many thoughts in the heart of a person but it's the counsel of God that will stand. People have plans. They say they had mensch tracht, got lacht. People have all these types of machshavas, all of these types of dreams. What's the connection here? It seems like Yeshua wanted to live much longer. That's why he delayed the years. That's why he delayed the wars. In reality, he lost 10 years. In other words, he lived shorter than Moshe. Moshe didn't delay the war. He went right away. He lived 120 years, even though he could have delayed the war and would have lived longer. But he didn't do that. Yeshua acted in the opposite way. He delayed the wars. That's what the Pasuk says. It took Yomim Rabim many years for him to engage in all of these wars with the 31 kings. Why? Because he wanted to live much longer. And he was afraid if he does it swiftly, he's going to die like Moshe Rabbeinu. He lived 10 years less than Moshe Rabbeinu. Medrash Tanchuma Parshas Matis. Scroll down. Let's see the Svasemes. The Holy Svasemes, Rabbi Yehuda Aryeleib Alter, the Gary Rebbe, as I, I shared many times, his grandfather was the Chidusha Harim Rebbe Shemeir Alta, the first Rebbe of Gur, passed away in 1866. And then for a few years, the Hasidim were led by Reb Henech, Henech of Alexander, the Kayin, they called him the Kayin Gadl. And then afterwards, the Svasemes, he came of age, he became the second or third Rebbe, depends how you want to count it, in the Hasidic dynasty of Gary, passed away, Shvat Hei Shvat Tafir 1905. His book on Chumash is called, and on holidays is called Svasemes. And this is from the year Tofresh Nun. Tofresh Nun would mean what? 1890. It's a Svasemes As usual, he's very brief and very cryptic and very concise. But let me try to explain it. He tries to tackle this Medrash. I guess pun intended. The Medrash is talking about tackling. The Medrash. We learn in the Medrash says the Svasemes. Quoting the Medrash that we just learned, Moshe could have lived another few years by delaying the war with Midian. But this demonstrates the praise of Moshe Rabbeinu. He said to himself, in order for me to live, the vengeance of the Jewish people against the Midianites should be delayed? No. Doesn't make sense. It's not worth it. That's what he said to himself. That's what the Medrash says. That why did Moshe not delay the war? Why did Moshe not delay the war? Why did he not say, for the sake of my remaining alive, I will delay the vengeance on Midian? 
He did not say that. Rather, what did he say? He said immediately, we're going to go to war against Midian. Now, ask the Sfasem as a question. I don't understand. V'tzadich bir. Lomalei hai taima v'alei metzuva v'oimed hu nekayim. The Medrash gives a reason why Moshe was justifying him going to war right away and not delaying it. He said, for me to live, the Jewish people shouldn't exact vengeance. In other words, there are two priorities. One priority here is, I want to live longer. But there's another priority. And the other priority is that the Jews should exact vengeance from the Midianites. So Moshe says, Moshe doesn't say, for me to live, it's my personal gain. I want to live. It's my thing. I like life. I want to live. But because of that, I'm not going to stop all the Jewish people from exacting the vengeance of those who wanted to exterminate them. Therefore, we're going to go to war. I am going to die afterwards. Okay. As far as I'm I don't understand. Why did he have to make this whole calculation? He had a mitzvah from Hashem to go do it. Let's say it wasn't the vengeance. Because I should live, the Jewish people should not get vengeance from the Midianim right away. Why do you need this rationale? God told you to do something, you do it. It seems like the Medrash is putting in a calculation into Moshe's head. My living longer is not worth to laying the vengeance of the Jewish people against Midian. Very nice. But why did he need this whole explanation? Why did he need this rationale, this justification to go to war right away? Because it's important for them to exact vengeance. It's very simple. God told him to do it. So he did it. Mitzvah v'aymadu. He was a servant of Hashem. Hashem said, Nikaim. God didn't say, wait five years. God didn't say, wait 20 years. He said, now, Nikaim, Nikim, Midian. So he did it. So you might answer, that's exactly what the Medrash is saying. That even though there was an incentive in him not to do it, why? Because he wanted to live. But he did nonetheless, he did it because he would not say to himself that for me to live, I'm going to delay the vengeance. But there's something strange because it's not about the vengeance. It's not about the nature of what the mitzvah is. It's about the fact that God told him to do it. Let's say God would have told him to do something else nothing to do with the Midianim. And then he would say, you'll die afterwards. You do it because Hashem said to do it. Now he knows best. He's God. He calls the shots. He told you to do it. You do it. The Medrash makes this whole pilpul, this whole calculation that he made. There's a much deeper perspective. Whenever somebody is going to go to war, and is going to exact payment and administer vengeance, and is going to battle a war for the sake of a mitzvah, one must make sure that they are cleansed from every ulterior motive, even the slightest. When I'm doing you a favor, when I'm being nice, okay, so I have personal agendas. I like the compliment. I like the satisfaction. I like the reward. You're doing something good. But if you're going to war, very, very powerful stuff. If you're going to war, if you're going to hurt somebody else, you make sure that you got no personal incentives. 
even the slightest. And if somebody does have an agia, does have some agenda, even a very small one and a very subtle one, the slightest agenda, ultimately they will not be able to endure the war. They won't be successful. Because one of the greatest, greatest virtue above everything else is what we say in the song. The Jewish people sang after the splitting of the sea. You remember? We say it every single morning. Omar Oyev. Erdoif. Asig. Achalak Sholo. The Egyptians say, the enemy said, Omar Oyev, I'm going to pursue the Jewish people. I will reach them. I will defeat them. And I will distribute their spoil. That's the foe of the Jewish people. Now come to another Pasuk, the opposite. I'm going to pursue my enemies and I'm going to get them. I'm going to reach them. He says, to be able to say that, to be able to make that a mission, you have to be so pure. You have to be so cleansed. Because if there's some insecurity or ego or any personal agenda involved, it can ruin everything. When, again, when I'm doing somebody a favor, when I'm doing something kind and benevolent, it's also important to know your agendas. It's important to be honest. But even if you have another agenda, Shai, there's the story of a chassar who came to the Balatanya, to the Alter Rebbe. And he said that he distributes money for charity, especially for poor people. But he feels that there's so much arrogance and ego involved. He loves the credit and he loves the feedback and he loves the good feeling that he has, even if nobody else knows, but he knows. And he feels that there's no genuineness. It's not true. It's not earnest. It's not truthful. There's no MS. He gives poor people food, money, money, food, but it's not genuine, it's not MS, it's selfish. So the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shrezaman of Liadi, went into a dveikus, he went into some spiritual trance for a few minutes. And then he came back and he used to speak with a melody, with a nigan. He said, Aber tishtikl breit und milch was the kinder, was the adam kinder essen, das is MS. But the piece of bread, the loaf of bread, and the bottle of milk that these poor children are going to get to eat and drink because of your donation, that's true. The bread is true. The milk is true. You may have less than, you may have motives that are not purely idealistic. Okay, so you have to work on yourself. But the bread is true. The milk is true. <laughs> you're giving them real bread. Even if you're not real, but you're giving them something real. So don't judge yourself so much. Relax. As you say, cut yourself slack. You have to work on yourself. But you continue. You're doing good stuff. <laughs> the bread is real. That's when I'm giving bread and milk. But what if I'm fighting somebody? What if I'm going to war? Ooh. Here I have to be very careful. Here I have to really know what's my motivation. Whenever there's a machlekes, whenever there's a fight in a family, 
whenever there's a fight in a community. Ooh, he has to be very careful. I may quote God from today till tomorrow. I may say, it's only for God. I have no agenda. Why do I have to be careful here? Because sometimes in the name of God and in the name of truth and in the name of idealism, I destroy myself and I destroy my family and I destroy my community and I destroy other people. So to be able to say, I'm going to pursue my enemies and reach them, he says, this is one of, this is a very, very high level. Do you think the Medrash really had a doubt that Moshe Rabbeinu may have delayed God's commandment just for his personal agenda? Do we even have that doubt about Moshe Rabbeinu? After everything we know about him, the Medrash is like, by the way, I want to tell you what a good man Moshe is. He did not delay the war for him to live. Do we really think that that's how he called the shots? He first asked, what's in it for me? His whole life was a life of absolute dedication. That was never a question. And the Medrash doesn't have to tell us that the Torah is going to teach us the greatness of Moshe, that he was not driven by personal agendas, even the agenda of life. Rak HaKavana, the meaning of the Medrash is, Shayim la ya goiver boy nikmas b'nei Yisrael yoysim mekal chayin avshay hayim emele boy ktsas it means certainly he would have gone to war. He wouldn't have allowed personal desires to override what the right thing is. God told him to go, he would go. The question is something else. If in his inner heart, the desire to do the right thing, to fight the battle for the Jewish people, wouldn't have been more powerful than his entire life, so as he was waging a battle, deep, deep in his soul, maybe unconsciously, he would have had an agenda. He would have had a motive to delay the war, even if he wouldn't. And then it would have not been successful because a part of him would be undermining it. Wow. The Medrash is not telling us that in actuality, Moshe did what God wanted. Hashem told him to do it. Of course he would do it. Whatever God would say, take revenge, don't take revenge, do this, do that. You don't need an explanation why he did it and he did not delay it because he wants to live. Hashem told him to do it. He was an Eved Hashem. That's not a question. What the Medrash is saying is something else. You could do something, but deep inside, are you completely at peace with it? Or maybe not. You're doing it, but there's a part of you that's revolting against it. There's a part of you that's pushing you away, that's pulling you in the opposite direction. It may be conscious, it may be unconscious, but it's there. That's what the Medrash is saying. Moshe didn't even have any voice inside of him that was pulling him in the other direction. Why not? Because his passion for the Jewish people to protect them, to get rid of this genocidal nation that had one agenda to exterminate them, was so powerful that his own personal life did not play a role. You know, sometimes you have a person, they embody the people so deeply. Their life becomes synonymous with the people. His own personal life was not relevant. That's what the Medrash is saying. So therefore, even on an internal level, Moshe was not conflicted. It's not like, on one hand, I want to help the people, on the other hand, I want to live, but this is the right thing to do. There was no Nagia. There was no personal agenda whatsoever, this way or that way, not to fight them. 
He fought them because God wanted him to fight them to save the people. And not, not to fight them in order for him to be able to live. Now we'll understand what happens with Yeshua. The cost of the Medrash says, The Medrash continues that Yeshua made sure to delay the battle. And the battle took many, many years. Why? Because he wanted to live longer and he was afraid that if he finishes the battle, he's going to die soon after. And because of that, he lost 10 years. It's extremely absurd to say this about Yeshua. Really? Yeshua knew that the Jewish people have to go into Eretz Yisrael. They need to conquer the land and defeat their enemies. This is their homeland. This is where God wants them to be. And yet Yeshua, who's called the Eved Hashem, a servant of God, says, well, 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 wait. Priorities, I got to make sure I live longer. We all understand people crave power. We all understand people want to live. This is normal. We all want to live. We all understand people crave their positions and their thrones, and they will often manipulate their positions as leaders for their own benefit. We see it constantly. We call it corruption. Financial benefits, political benefits, longevity on the throne. That's what people do. That's what mortals of flesh and blood do because we have different agendas and those agendas motivate us. The question is on Yahushua. He wasn't just sent on a mission to do some small little task. This is really defining the history of the Jewish people and he is considered the suitable successor of Moshe Rabbeinu. God chose Yahushua, not Moshe's children. And he told them, I'll be there with you the way I was with Yahushua. The way I was with Moshe. It's diff- isn't it difficult to say that Yeshua could finish off the job, but he doesn't want to. He's like, I'll take my time. <laughs> let me go study. Let me go meditate. Let me go relax. We'll do it slowly. We'll do it in a slow pace. Why? Because he wants to live longer. The Tzvassamah says it's, a, it's very strange to believe this, that this is what the Medrash means. The Subkasha. There's also another question. doesn't even make sense. Daksiv. The Pasuk says in Yeshua chapter 11, quoted by this Medrash, that Yehoshua was engaged in this battle with the 31 kings for many years. It's clear that he wasn't sitting idly at home. Great question. What... You really have an option when you're in the middle of a battle to make it longer or make it shorter? I mean, your enemy calls the shots as much as you call the shots. If it would say about Yahushua, he killed one of the kings, and then he said, you know what, <laughs> let's take a break. Let's take a break. Let's retreat to our territory and stay there for 10 years and study Torah and do mitzvahs and fabrik together and learn together and, and uh, live together. Okay, I get it. But it says clearly in the Pasuk and the Tanakh that all these years he's engaged in war. He's just delaying it. He's procrastinating. He said, how does that work in a war? I mean, when you're engaged in a battle, either you live or you die. You kill or you get killed. You're on the offense or you're on the defense. You can't say, you know what, guys? Uh, let's take a break now for three months and then we'll resume. You're in a battle. You're in a bloody battle. If you're successful, you're going to win. If it's going to take a week, it'll take a week. If it'll take a month, it'll take a month. If it'll take a year, it'll take a year. If it'll take five years, it'll take five years. But you're not the one to make the choice. Yeshua says, you know what? Eh, we're not going to mobilize any soldiers today. Let's wait a couple of months and then we'll mobilize them. You're talking about war. 
I think in the First World War, if I'm not mistaken, there were such bloody and inconsequential battles over there in, in Ypres and Belgium and other places. And I think that there was once for New Year's that both sides decided they're going to take a break for 24 hours just to celebrate the holiday. Both sides, they could agree on that. And it's such a sad story because it showed that, you know, right after that day was over, they just went back to killing each other. I don't know, 10 million were killed, the first, the Great War, they called it. But it's not usually what happens in a war. You don't get to call the shots. You're in a battle. So what does it even mean? Again, if it says Yeshua didn't engage in war, he retreated, he remained at home, I get it. But it's not what it says. It's Yomim Rabim, Asa Yeshua's Kalam Lachim Elam Throughout all this time that he was delaying, he was in war, he was in battle. He was in a Mulchama. So how does he delay it? So he's not delaying it. So what is he being penalized for? So how are we supposed to understand this? How are we supposed to understand this mandrash? So he asks two questions. First of all, it's very strange to assume that Yeshua literally allowed a personal agenda, even a great agenda. I want to live. It's a normal agenda. Nonetheless, he allowed that to really eclipse his task as a Jewish leader. Instead of saying, let me do my job. When I have to leave this world, I'll leave this world. And number two, it doesn't even make sense in the story because he continued with the war, so you can't make it shorter than necessary or longer than necessary. Avul Ha'inyin, the explanation says the Svasemes, Yisboyer, will be explained, Kemoshin Yisboyer Lel, based on what we explained before by Moshe. Of course he didn't do anything to undermine the mission. No. Of course he wouldn't allow his agenda, I want to live longer, I don't want to die, and therefore I'm not going to conquer Yisrael. You were sent on a mission to this world, Yeshua. You're the leader. Do what you have to do. It means something else. Al-Yidei, Shohaya because there was internally, internally, not externally, internally he had a negia, he had an agenda. He thought about the fact, he thought about the fact that his life is dependent on this. So the battle could not be won easily. Yomim Rabim Shotzar. And that's why the battle continued. The battle continued for much longer than it would have been otherwise. Because he himself was conflicted. Not that the conflict caused him to do something wrong. No. He went to battle and he did it as fast as he can and he did it as successfully as he can. But because internally, he was conflicted. He was being pulled in different directions. There was a voice in him that said, you know, remember, after this you die. I'm not going home. I'm going to continue. But this was in his consciousness. After this, you're going to die. So this created a damper on the war. And he didn't have the stamina, the vigor, the success, and the divine success to be able to defeat them easily. And therefore it stretched on and on and on and on. Because when you don't do something with your full heart, even though you're doing it and you know that you need to do it, but he himself unconsciously was undermining himself. 
Sometimes, excuse me, sometimes people tell you, I want this very much in my life. And they do. But they also don't want it. (laughs) They may not be honest about it. I want it, but I also don't want it. I want it to happen, but I really don't want it to happen because there's a lot of fear. So in an unconscious way or in a conscious way, I undermine my own my own desire. So that's what he says. Wow. There was also a war in himself. Okay, now here it's easy to miss. I was looking something up. It's easy to miss the subtlety of what he's saying. It says in Parsha Shmois, Vayihi bayomim harabim ahem. It happened during those many days the king of Egypt died and the Jewish people moaned and groaned from the slave labor and they cried out to God. So the Medrash says, Medrash Rabbah Parsha Shmois, Because they were days of agony and pain, they're called Yomim Rabbim, many, many days. Because when somebody's in a state of joy and jubilation and serenity, you know, the time just flies and passes. But when I'm, God forbid, in a, in, in a day of pain, the days stretch on and they never end. You know, when you have, they call it, it was a long day. <laughs> what do you mean it's a long day? Rashi writes in Sefer Apartus that Shabbos Hagadol was called Shabbos Hagadol. Big Shabbos, the great Shabbos. Why? Because the rabbis would give Shabbos Hagadol drashas. They would give Shabbos Hagadol sermons. So everybody said, oh, this was a long Shabbos. You know, when you're sitting at a long speech and it can get a little boring and monotonous. So you shouldn't feel bad that only today people have ADD. Even in Rashi's days, which means in the 11th century, people couldn't sit at the Shabbos HaGadot Russia. And they used to call it, well, this is a long, this is a big, long Shabbos that never ends. When you're having a good time, when you're involved in something that creates joy and serenity and tranquility and you're enthusiastic about it, the day flies by. You say, well, the time flies, the time flew by. I didn't even realize. You know, they say, you could have gone another hour. I wouldn't have realized. But when it's agonizing and when it's monotonous and when it's boring, it goes on and on and on. So, Vahibi Yomim Harabim says the Medrash. Rabim is Yomim Shotzar. So, the Svasemes says that's how you have to understand this Medrashos. The Pasuk says in Perikir Aleph Yahishua, Yomim Rabim Asa Yahishua is called Malachim Eilam Alchama. Yom Ram doesn't only mean it took many days, it took a long time. It means these were long days of aggravation. Maybe physically it didn't take more than it would have taken otherwise. But the mental state was one of inner pain, of inner anxiety, of inner vexation and stress, of agony and suffering. That makes it many days. Says the Svasemes. There was a war inside of Moshe. There was a, inside of Yahshua. There was a tug of war inside of Joshua. There was a war inside of him. I want to do God's will. I want to give Eretz to the Jewish people. I also want to live. There was an inner war. 
This created many days of pain, of vexation, of suffering. It could even be that he's intimating that maybe it took as long as it would have taken otherwise. Maybe. But it didn't feel that way. It felt so long. It was so draining because it was so painful. It was so difficult because of his own inner conflict. Or simply what he means is the war took much longer because there was a part of him that had a different agenda. There was a part of him that wasn't happy with it. So it's not that he didn't do the right thing. He did the right thing. But his heart was not cleansed of other ulterior motives. That's why the Medrash continues with a strange ish. People have many thoughts, but God ultimately is victorious. Okay, we know that. What's the point here? So literally, you're going to say, Yeshua wanted to live longer, but God said, no. You're going to live shorter than Moshe. He wanted to live longer than Moshe. He lived shorter than Moshe. Rabbis machshavas belevish. The whole Tanakh is based on the fact that God runs the world. Why does the Medrash bring this Pasuk? So he says, Wow. The Medrash is trying to tell you there was no sin. Yeshua didn't do anything wrong. There was just a thought. All it was was a thought. But this thought, this is what prevented him. He could not defeat the enemy momentarily. Rabbis Machshavah, so it was all about a machshava. The Medrash doesn't even mean to talk about this second part of the Pesach, people are reading the Medrash wrong. The Medrash is not trying to bring out that Yeshua had his plans and God had his plans. No! The Medrash was trying to bring out that this was all about Rabbis Machshavah is Belevish. In action, Yeshua went to war. He did not delay anything. God told him to go and he went and he did the right thing because he was a genuine leader and he did not put his own needs or desires ahead of the people. But internally, internally there was a machshava. There was a nagiyah. There was a thought. He was a person. I want to live. And I'm afraid that what I'm doing now is going to compromise that. That's it. And that machshava, which Moshe did not have, changed. It changed the nature of the war. It changed the battle. You have to be so aware, you have to be so self-aware of what's happening inside of you. Hashem is the one who always knows what's in my heart and what's in my kidneys. Even the thoughts that you yourself are not aware of, God is very aware of them. Now go back to the Medrash when the Medrash says, let me tell you the praise of Moshe. It's not to tell me that Moshe said, I don't care about what God told me. I'm going to live another 10 years and I'm going to delay the war. Nah, that's not a big deal that he didn't do that. He was a real man. He worked for Hashem. He didn't work for himself. The Shvach of Moshe is, there was no Nagiyah. There was no ulterior motive. 
there was complete peace and surrender. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu defined his life as a channel for Hashem. So if this is what's happening now, if I want to take, if we have to take vengeance of the nation that tried to exterminate the Jewish people, Moshe was not just at peace with it. He didn't just do it, and he wasn't just at peace with it. His entire identity was completely focused on that. And there was no inner conflicting voice of saying, but I want to live. And now there's a battle between the two forces tugging at him. The priority to go to war and the priority not to go to the war. He was so dedicated to the people and so dedicated to their safety and their security and their survival that that whole agenda about his life, it it was just subsumed. It it just surrendered. There was no negia there. By Yeshua, he also did the right thing, but there was a machshava. And because there was a machshava, it delayed the war. He couldn't be successful. It delayed the war. And he says, sometimes these thoughts are not conscious. Thoughts that I don't feel them. I don't know that I'm having them. But for God, they're very real. And what they what it means for God, they're very real, is don't think they don't exist and don't think they don't have an impact. They have a real impact. And therefore, I have to open myself up to that truth and see if I'm undermining what I'm doing because I have this conflict, which is part of being a human being. Now, what we're learning from here is that there are two states of people. There's Moshe, there's Yeshua. Moshe manages to go to that state where there's absolutely no conflicting motive. Yeshua does not. He wants to live longer. And not, and it's not that because he wants to live longer, he changes the plans. He does not change the plans. But the plans get changed because of that. And sometimes I'm not even aware of it. But God is very aware of it. Rabbi Machshava is Belevish. And they're very real. Because of that, he couldn't be successful in the war. Yamim Rabbim. The war was delayed. The war procrastinated. Not that he did something to make the war get delayed. You can't. Once you're in war, you're in war. But because of the lack of full stamina and motivation, the war was prolonged. And even the nature of the war was with much more vexation, with much more pain, with much more suffering. And the suffering came from within, inside of himself. There was a lot of conflict there. And paradoxically, what happens? Moshe lives longer than Yeshua. That's the paradox, of course. Because the source of life is God. Moshe completely surrenders to Hashem. There's no other agenda. He actually lives much longer than Yeshua. And this is what the Mepharshim explain. And when he says in Mepharshim, he's talking about the Hasidic masters. The Degel Machne, Ephraim, and Parshas Matas, that's the grandson of the Balshamtiv, the Kedushas Levi, the Baditshevet, the Ayav Yisrael, the Apterov, the Kal Simcha, the Simcha Benim of Pshischa. They all say the same thing. Pirish HaPasik, the Pasik says, Hey, Cholzu Me'itchem. It's a very strange, um, expression that's used. Moshe Rabbeinu tells the soldiers that are going to go to fight with Midian, Hey, Cholzu Me'itchem. Literally, it means, mobilize from among you. Hechaltsu means mobilize from among you soldiers. Literally, hechaltsu means to remove. Like chalitza, to remove the shoe. La chalitz is to remove, to eliminate, to get rid of. He says, Peter Shaposek, hechaltsu mitchem sha'anshi amolchamet srichem lachloitz kol negiyas atzmusan limser nafshem lamolchamet sashem. When you're going to war, 
you have to get rid of all personal agendas and all personal worries and concerns to sacrifice your life to the battle of God. You have to get rid of the itchem. That's pshat. Not heicholzu meitchem. Mobilize from among you heicholzu. Remove meitchem, the itchem. That's not easy. Heicholzu, could you be cholitz? Like you have chalitzas b'gadim, lachlitz to take off your clothes. Heicholzu meitchem. If you want to be successful in a mulchama, be completely dedicated. I have to remove all my negias, all my ulterior motives, all my agendas, all my insecurities, all my fears. I have to let it go. Not deny it, not repress it, then it's going to be there. Transcend it. Emancipate myself from it. You can't force somebody to do this. It has to be a very internal it's, it's an internal space. It's an internal decision. Uksiv, the Pasuk says, Yisrael. They gave over thousands of Jewish soldiers to go to the army. When they heard about the death of Moshe, they didn't want to go. They said, if we're going to go to war, we're going to hasten Moshe's death. So the Jews, Jewish soldiers didn't want to go. They didn't want to go to war against Midian. <laughs> Why? Because they knew that Moshe is going to die after. They said, we're not going. So Vayi muster. That's why it says they were given over. They themselves didn't want it. They had to be pushed and compelled. So he explains, what does this really mean? They did have an agenda because they loved Moshe. They couldn't go to war full-heartedly because they loved Moshe. They didn't want him to die. But by Moshe telling them, he elevated them to a different space and he took away from them all of their ulterior motives. And by force, they were drawn into the path of Moshe. They were lured into the infinite halo of Moshe on their own, just like Yahushua, they had a Nagia. They wanted Moshe to live. They didn't want to go to war. But Moshe told them, if you want to be successful, this cannot be about you and your agendas and your desires and your. I understand you want me to live, but if you want to be successful when you're in a Mulchamas Hashem, you have to be completely one with the source, completely one with the cause. There's no I whatsoever. You have to become synonymous with the cause. Don't take yourself seriously, but take the cause seriously. There are two types of people. There are people who don't take the cause seriously, but they take themselves very seriously. Moshe says, don't take yourself seriously, but take the cause seriously. And when you take the cause seriously, you become emancipated from everything. Because it's not about me. And if that's the case, Moshe said, hey, chaltzu me'itchem, let go of all your, my negias. We all have negias. I all have my insecurities and my fears and my issues and my toxicity and my traumas and my motives and what I want, what I want. This is a moment where the nation, where God is calling upon you to single-mindedly dedicate your entire soul to bring redemption to this people, to get rid of their, to get rid of the genocidal nation of Midian, which is what they do. But they don't want to go. They also have a negia. I want Moshe to live. It's a beautiful ulterior motive. It's not so ulterior, it's pretty selfless, but it's some type of motive that's going to hold back the mysterious nefesh. Moshe says, you can't go there. 
So Vayimosu, they're forced. What does it mean they're forced? Not they're physically forced. You can't chain people to send them to war. It means spiritually they were taken away from their mindset and brought into Moshe's mindset. And what's Moshe's mindset? Moshe's mindset is complete dedication to the cause. Moshe's mindset is that he didn't even experience a conflict between wanting to live longer and going to war for Midian because his entire identity, his entire life was just a channel for infinity. Questions. Great question. If Yeshua himself was not aware of this, how could he work on it? I don't know that he says that Yeshua wasn't aware of it. He says sometimes a person is unaware of it. It could be Yeshua was aware of it because it says that what? Yamim Rabim Asa Hamulchama and Yamim Rabim, he says it was days of Tsar. So it could be he was aware of it. I don't know that he was not aware of it. Next question. I cannot control the thoughts that come up. I can only control my reactions to my thoughts. So why is Yeshua at fault for thoughts that come up, especially if they come up subconsciously? And where does that leave all of us, who all have all these different types of thoughts with personal agendas and personal fears and personal insecurities, subconsciously and and, and consciously? Where does all of this leave us? It seems like we, we have no hope with this. It's a beautiful question. Beautiful question. If you remember, we once did a shear in Parshas Chayesara. It's also a Svasemes. Beautiful, beautiful shear. Why the story of Eliezer is repeated in the Torah. The whole story is repeated twice. It's one of the longest parshas in the whole Torah. Because Eliezer also had an ulterior motive. He didn't want to find a Shidduch for Yitzchak because he wanted his own daughter to marry Yitzchak. So even though he was a faithful servant of Avram and he did his job, but there was a part of him that was undermining his job because deep down he didn't want it to work out because he wanted his own daughter to marry Yitzchak. So he didn't want to be able to find the bride for Yitzchak in Mesopotamia. And that's why the Torah has to tell the story all over again because the Torah first tells the story the way it happened and then Eliezer repeats the whole story. And when Eliezer repeats the whole story to Psuel and Lavan and Rivka's family, he suddenly becomes aware that he is the obstacle. He suddenly brings to the fore that he is the one who's holding it back unconsciously because he has another agenda. And the moment he becomes aware of it and he shines a light on it, he's not a prisoner anymore of it. And that's why he repeats the whole story. It's an amazing, amazing idea. It's brought in the Svasemis and Chayisara and other places in the name of the Kotzke Rebbe. We had a whole shear on this. It's, in, it's on the yeshiva.net, Parshish Chayisara. So what does this mean for us? This means for us... What? If you can mute yourself. What does this mean? What does this mean for us? What it means for us is we all have different thoughts. I'm not in control of that. I have fears. I have desires. I have instincts. I have all types of visceral, emotional reactions that come up. Things that come into my brain. But here's the deal. 
if I could become self-aware and I could notice what is happening inside of me and then I can choose how to live in a way that I'm not controlled and dictated by those thoughts, that's an extraordinary moment of liberation and emancipation. In other words, there are thoughts that come up and when I'm not aware of it, they actually dictate my behavior because they pull me in different directions without even being aware of what's happening to me. And this happens constantly. It happens constantly with your children. It happens constantly with your spouse. It happens constantly with yourself, with other people. Things are controlling me without me knowing that they're controlling me. And then I give different justifications and rationalizations. You know, my brain comes up with reasons why I have to hate you, why I have to get angry at you, why I have to scream at you, why I have to run away. I already have a lot of good reasons because you're dangerous, because you're this, because you're that, but it's all fake. It's all covering up for the fact that I'm so unaware of what's happening inside of me. But if you can actually bring it up to the fore and then you can quarantine it, you can define it, and then it doesn't dictate you. Rather, you dictate it. So the way we understand this, the way that what, what he's teaching us here is, of course we have conflict. Of course I may have different thoughts, but I could look at it in two different ways. One is these thoughts come up and I'm a victim of these thoughts. In other words, either they're unconscious, so I'm a victim to them, and even if they're conscious, they confuse me, they overwhelm me, and therefore they dampen my stamina, and they don't allow me to be successful in the battle that I have to achieve. But there's something much more powerful that we have to learn from this, and that is whatever thought comes up in me, I am never a victim to it. I could see it for what it is, I can appreciate it for what it is, and I could really look at it as simply a catalyst and a springboard for more awareness, for more growth, and for making the right decisions. And then I'm not a prisoner by it. Even though it's there, I'm not a prisoner, because essentially what I did was, I eliminated the ability for it to influence me. Question. The Svasemis clearly says, In these words, it seems like he is referring even to thoughts that the person himself is unaware of. For sure, it's clear that a lot of this, maybe most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, are thoughts that I'm unaware of, and they're undermining the situation. And because I'm not aware of it, I can't even do anything about it. And that's why it's so important to be able to become aware of what is happening, to open myself up to all of the reactions inside of me. I don't have to be afraid of anything. The only thing that's worse than having these types of thoughts is making believe I don't. In other words, repressing them or suppressing them, consciously or unconsciously, hiding them, forcing them under the radar. So what I do, what I then do is I'm in denial and now they're controlling my life without me knowing how much they're controlling my life because they go under the radar and they leak out in all types of dysfunctional ways, you know, passive aggression, anger, frustration, resentment, depression. They leak out, but they're leaking because I didn't let them come to the force. I can't deal with them. So in a way, when they're unconscious, they're much more dangerous. Like I said about Eliezer, Eliezer had to bring them out to the consciousness in order to be able to deal with them. And the same is true with us, with each and every one of us. So nobody is here demonstrating against the fact 
Nobody is lamenting the fact that we have different thoughts and different agendas. Not everybody is Moshe Rabbeinu. The point is, can I be open to it? Can I be aware of it? Can I let it be? Can I even have compassion for it, understanding what it's there for, and I don't have to deny it, and therefore I also don't have to allow it to take over my life. And therefore you're not going to creep into my motivation, and you're not going to stop me from winning the wars that I have to win. If you could see it for what it is, then you can quarantine it, you can allow it to be, even though it's painful, even though it's real, even though it's authentic, and then you don't allow it to define your wars. You don't allow it to turn you into a loser. You could still be a victor with great stamina and vigor, but it takes courage and it takes resolve. So in a way, once it comes to the fore, you can actually deal with it, because it could come to the fore and take you over. Or it could come to the fore and you could say, no, it's only here to help me. It's here to teach me what I'm dealing with, what I'm struggling with, what I have to be afraid of, but I'm not going to allow it to control what the right thing for me to do is at this moment. This is what I need, this is what I want, this is what I truly desire. Question. You said earlier that when somebody goes to war, or when somebody's fighting, you have to really, really be aware of your agendas. Because if not, you're not going to be successful. What does this mean practically? What it means practically is, that if I'm going to do something that's going to be divisive, if I'm going to uh, split up a family or a community, you just really want to make sure that this is what God wants you to do. In other words, if it's coming from my trauma, my insecurities, or my or my <laughs> mood disorders, or my personality disorders, or my deep loneliness, or my deep anger, or my deep pain, which may all be humanly acceptable and I have to have compassion for it, don't blame it on truth and don't turn it into an idealistic into an idealistic goal. Sometimes people get into fights and they don't speak to their brother, they don't speak to their sister. They are abusive, they do wrong things and they have all these excuses and it's they are so destructive. You have to be extremely careful at every step of the way to take a step back, to get objective advice, to open yourself up to real critique from people who care for you and care about the truth. Because once our need for victory gets in the way, we become very dangerous people. If we as humans don't know all of our subconscious feelings and actions, how can we change our thinking? How can we improve ourselves? It seems like we're in an impossible situation. Great question. The answer is nobody's asking of you to do something that's impossible. What we're asking of you is to be able to take note of all the things that do come up in your consciousness. Take note. Take note of your thoughts. Take note of your feelings. And when you take note of them, then you can actually handle them. You can actually know how to put them in their place because you took note of them. That's all right. We're not asking you to know everything that you're not thinking and you're not feeling. But we are asking you to take note of what you are feeling and you are thinking. Question. How does one help someone else who is stuck in this space? How do we help this person? Is it possible or is it only something one can do for themselves? It's a great question. You just have to explain to me what you mean by stuck in this, in this space. Stuck in which space? If you could just clarify so then I can uh, try to uh, understand. Thank you. Okay.
How does somebody help somebody else who's stuck in this space? They are unaware of the self-sabotage. Ooh, that's a good question. Somebody who's unaware of self-sabotage. I think it's one of the most important questions. (laughs) Because this is so much of what goes on in so many of our lives. I self-sabotage myself. And therefore, I, I sabotage other people. I go into a place, I'm so stuck, and it's often trauma. It's so often that what we're seeing today, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a social worker, I'm not a coach, but what everybody's seeing today is that trauma creates so much self-sabotage because basically I'm in a traumatized space and everything that's happening to me, I'm interpreting through the lens of trauma, right? And... Everything is being filtered through the paradigm of trauma. And therefore, my reality is completely skewed. My perspective on people is completely skewed. I don't even have a choice in the matter. It's like in the marriages, especially, the husband towards the wife or the wife towards the husband. So the husband is looking at his wife and he's completely interpreting her from a place of inner trauma. He doesn't see her for who she is. He's getting angry at her and explaining it with all types of explanations that are not based in reality. They're based in his own interpretations of reality, which is forced upon him based on his terrible, terrible fears and traumas. And it's really all of his own thoughts and emotions that are undermining healthier relationships and a happier self. How do we make a person aware of this? How can we help somebody? We cannot do this work for anybody else. But we can help a person who wants to be helped. We can help point them towards different reactions so that they should be able to learn how to challenge themselves. For example, I'm going to give you an example. Um, I know of a couple. They were having a very, very difficult marriage. And extremely difficult marriage. Fine people, good people. But there's a lot of trauma, and it was a very difficult relationship, a very difficult marriage. Now, the way I'm going to change some facts, because you know it's a couple that I know well, and they may be listening, so I'm not going to, even though I'm not saying names, but I'm not going to say the story exactly the way it happened. The way the woman dealt with the man was... Again, both fine people. The husband, a fine person. The woman, a fine person. The way the woman dealt with the man was she basically stonewalled. She went into her own space. She detached. She uh, spaced out. This was her way of dealing with it. And they survived that way because she was not confrontational, and he did the same thing. He spaced out, she spaced out, so there was no confrontation, there was no fighting. They went to a therapist, and the therapist at some point asked her a question, and when the therapist asked her the question, she answered something, and the answer was extremely hurtful to the husband. So the therapist pointed out to her, and the therapist said, you know that what I'm hearing is a lot of anger. Do you feel anger? 
Because an answer like you gave in a very pleasant way, you gave in a very pleasant way, it's really a symptom of tremendous anger. And you know what happened? For the first time, this person went inwards and they realized how much anger there was that they didn't know. They were afraid of their anger. Because they were so afraid of their anger, because feeling the anger meant feeling the pain, feeling the loneliness, feeling the vulnerability. It means that you're getting to me. Instead, what do I feel? I feel nothing. I'm detached. If I feel the anger, that's a very vulnerable place. That means you're getting to me every moment of the day. But when this person realized how much anger there was, underlying the detachment, there was tremendous anger. And anger is always a cover-up for pain. Anger is a secondary emotion. It eclipses a deeper emotion, which is pain. They suddenly became aware of anger. They became aware of pain. And now they can begin to heal. So you can't do the work for a person, not for a woman, not for a man, not for anybody. But if I can point out to myself or point out to you and say, do you notice how angry you are? Can you just notice it? Don't judge it. It's very scary for us. It's scary for us to notice how angry we are. Me? No, no, no. I'm an intellectual. I'm a, I'm a cerebral. I got it figured out. Me? No, I'm a nice person. I'm not an angry person. I'm loving. Look how much chesed I do. <laughs> it's very scary to notice how much anger I have. Because, again, it means... I'm in so much pain. It means I'm so vulnerable. It means you're getting to me. It means you're destroying me. I don't want to go there. So I deny the anger. How do I deny the anger? I say, I don't need you. Or I just blame you. You're impossible. And I detach. But when you become aware of that, you don't get rid of it. But suddenly you can look at it. You can deal with it. You can ask, what's causing you so much anger? What's the pain here? And then you're on your way towards recovery. It's very powerful. Perhaps the idea quoted in the famous Noyem Elimelech, Lahazir G'daylem Alaktanim, could be applied here as well. If a person works on himself in times of spiritual awareness and learns to work on himself during the days of G'daylem, when you have great days, then later, when you have a difficult moment, K'tanim, this will come up and help you choose the correct response. Famous Chernobyl of art, Lahazir G'daylem Alaktanim. The great days have to light up the small days, right? Lahazir from the word Zoyhar, light. G'daylem, when we have great days, Moichan the Gadlus, they have to be able to light up the small days. No, it's absolutely true. Because when you have a strong conviction or a strong value and you live by it and you believe in it and it's really part of who you are, it means so much to you. Then comes days where you're not feeling it and you're not experiencing it but they enlighten you at those moments so that even when you're having a difficult moment and you're having all of these thoughts creep up, you're completely not dictated by these thoughts, but you could put them in context, you can have compassion for them and not cause them to, and not have them control your life. How do you ever know what God wants from you? Is the war right or not? One person says God wants it, another person says God doesn't want it. So if you really have a doubt to go to war or not, you always abstain. You never... Again, when it comes to love, the worst thing you can do is you love the wrong person. Okay, when it comes to hate, you have to be very, very careful. So if you have a doubt, stay away. And you need to be surrounded with real good people who are confidants, who are objective, 
who will be able to steer you right if you're getting caught up in a, in a, in a, in a negative cycle. I just want to throw out a question for those who live in my area in Muncie and are listening or will listen to this class. We used to have, before Corona, the class actually live, not on Zoom or YouTube. It was also, it was also streamed, but it was also live in the tent by our shul, Tuesday mornings, 9.30. The challenge now is that Baruch Hashem, <laughs> the minyanim now continue till for many, many hours in the morning. So therefore we can't have the class at that time. So I want to know, for those who live here, if you think it would make sense to have a class, from your perspective, have a class later, which means around 12.30 or 1 o'clock p.m. It would also stream live and people can watch it later, but I'm talking about for physical attendance, because till that time, the tents in the shul are overpacked, the parking lot is overpacked. For anybody who lives in this area knows what I'm talking about. So my question to the women is, the women and the girls, if you could email me, or email the website if that time would be feasible for you. Just want to get some, you know, consensus. Twelve thirty-one on Tuesday in the afternoon, early afternoon. You can email me directly, Rabbi Yy at theyeshiva.net, or email info at theyeshiva.net. I wish you all a meaningful and beautiful, inspiring day. We should hear good news. Thank you for joining us. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.